0: Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today I will be speaking with Maureen A. Harvey, MPH, RN, MCCM, about her upcoming plenary Post-ICU Syndrome, Truth About Consequences, Bright Care, Right Now and Later, which she will present this February at the 45th Critical Care Congress in Orlando, Florida. Ms. Harvey works as a critical care educator and consultant from Lake Tahoe, Nevada, and is a former president of the SECM. I would like to thank Ms. Harvey, number one, for agreeing to be with us today for this podcast discussion. And maybe we could start, Ms. Harvey, by getting you to describe for us your history of involvement with SECM's PCIS project.
1: Well, first of all, I want to say, Dr. Lynn, I'm very excited to be able to talk to you and our listeners about this topic today. I've been a critical care nurse for 47 years, which is almost as long as critical care has been in existence, so kind of a pioneer. And you can imagine how many advances in the science and practice of critical care I've seen. And it's really allowed us to take care of more critically ill and severely injured patients to allow them to survive. And we're sending millions of patients back to the community. And although we've always known that they had a long, hard road to recovery, it's only been in the last 10 to 20 years that we've learned how remarkably common and devastating and long-term the consequences of critical illness can be for our patients and families and how much they can suffer. So as this all became apparent through the research We found it pretty disturbing, and to our credit, it set us into action. Figured we had to do something to implement ways to mitigate the impact of what we now call post intensive care syndrome. Uh, It's defined as new or worsening impairments in cognitive, physical, or mental function that arise and persist after a stay in ICU. So although the critical care community is rapidly becoming aware of these consequences, the non-critical care community was not. These things have been published in our journals and presented at our meetings, and non-critical care providers are busy keeping up with their own field. So it's clear if we don't tell them about these potential consequences and problems, then they're not going to know about them. So it's kind of our responsibility to increase their awareness and work with them to try to improve the care that these patients get after we discharge them. The atmosphere is kind of right for this. We've got three things working in our favor. Number one, the focus on patient family-centered care. And two, our focus on safe handoffs and transitions across the continuum of care. And third, the realization that critical care is defined not by the stay in the ICU, but the whole episode of care, which includes what brought them to us and what happens to them afterwards. One of the things that we did, SCCM did, was to hold two consensus conferences with stakeholders, one in 2010 and one in 2012. And what we did was gather critical care experts and representatives from the non critical care community. These were representatives from national organizations such as the Joint Commission and the NIH, primary care, uh, rehab, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech, language, and hearing, palliative care, long term care. We had caseworkers and two big healthcare systems, Kaiser and the VA. And importantly, we had patients and families who had experienced post-intensive care syndrome and some patient advocacy groups. So quite a diverse collection of perspectives shared at these two two two-day meetings. Mm -hmm. So that the representatives from these conferences have gone back to their own peers and organizations and through their publications and their presentations and initiatives are trying to spread the word, which has been very helpful and important. But as I said, it's very important to also increase awareness among the patients and their survivors and the families to really help decrease their fear of the unknown, what's going to happen to them when they go home, and decrease feelings of being unique when something new and terrifying is going on with them, and alert them to the possible need for outpatient follow-up assessments and uh, referrals. Basically, they just need to know we haven't abandoned them. Yeah, well, like you said,
0: for a time when our colleagues in the non-critical care world weren't as aware of the syndrome, then it's basically an entire set of patients and families who didn't know what to expect, and it's a set of uh, clinicians taking care of them who also were not aware. So that's an um, unfortunate combination, isn't it?
1: It's very unfortunate. And they would be looking for other causes and maybe kind of patients and families trying to write it off, thinking it's just going to get better. And, or, as I said, fearing that there is something dreadfully going on that nobody is paying attention to. So we've tried to help with this by, um, we got a definition of post-intensive care syndrome onto Wikipedia. And we had Patients and families who'd experienced post-intensive care syndrome do a couple videos. We have four or five videos that are now on uh, YouTube. We also have a pamphlet on post-intensive care syndrome for patients and families on that part of SCCM's website. Another resource you should be aware of is Johns Hopkins Group, OASIS. It's O-A-C-I-S, stands for Outcomes After Critical Illness and Surgery. On that website, you can find a lot of useful information on post-intensive care syndrome and also links to other sites with good information. SECM has also started something I'm very excited about, their Thrive campaign that is now the source of grants up to $50,000 for those doing research in ways to accelerate recovery from critical illness, and improving the support that our patients and families get after they leave us. So I'm sure this is going to lead to a lot of very exciting uh, information that will be helpful as we try to move forward. I think I probably ought to give you an idea of what these consequences are, what the research has shown. That'd be great. And you'll notice I'm going to give some pretty wide ranges because the studies have varied tremendously in the patient populations and the tools that they used and whether they did the assessments one month or eight years after discharge. So they're quite wide ranges. But the physical consequences include ICU-acquired weakness. About a fourth to half of patients who have been on a ventilator for four to seven days and half to three-fourths of those with sepsis develop this weakness. And in 10 to 60% of those in ICU, and if they've been on a ventilator, it could be 75%, have difficulty with just the activities of daily living a year later. And those that have this acquired weakness still can have some abnormal motor function two, five years later. The cognitive consequences, those are things like problems with memory and processing speed and planning and problem solving and visual-spatial awareness, that can happen in 30 to 80% of our patients assessed a year later. Mm -hmm. And if they've had ARDS, a fourth of them still have impairment six years later. In patients over 65 with sepsis, they still have impairment, can have impairment eight years later. The uh, psychological consequences, something like between 10 and 50 percent of our patients have symptoms of anxiety or depression or sleep disturbance, which can last for months to years, and 10 to 60 percent have significant symptoms of PTSD, which can be present years later. So all of this, you know, leads to some pretty heavy socioeconomic consequences. Our patients report a very uh, lower quality of life that may improve slowly, take years to return to baseline. And one study showed that 50% of our patients require some caregiver assistance a year later. That could be anything from just help with daily activities of daily living to just full-time care. And in patients with ARDS. One study showed that 50% of the patients hadn't returned to work a year later. So that's the bad news. The good news is that uh, we now have found many things, some strategies and tools that can decrease the incidence of post-intensive care syndrome, and some of these are things we've done for years for other good reasons, and now we have a, a stronger imperative to implement them, and some are are new. One of the things we can do is try to reduce the risk factors. And the risk factors include age over 65, well, that we can't do anything about, but we can do something about immobility, the number of days they spend on a ventilator, the number of days they're in ICU, use of heavy sedation, delirium, Mm -hmm. prevention of ARDS and sepsis, so, as I said, most of these, we have other reasons to address and, and have been working hard to diminish them. But, as I said, we have about uh, half a dozen tools now that have been shown to be helpful. Probably our most powerful tool is early mobility. And I come, as I said, free from years of practice in critical care when we kept our patients doped and comatose, thinking that, that was the right thing to do. Right. And we're now very well aware of the adverse effects of immobility and surprised actually about how many of our patients can participate in early mobility programs from the beginning of their stay in the ICU, even when they have continuous drips and are on a ventilator and have invasive lines. And it can begin with things like passive and active range of motion in the bed to progress to bed ergometry bicycle ergometry to ambulating in the hallways and you can imagine this takes extra work and the right resources and training but has tremendous impact it can decrease the time they spend on the ventilator decrease weakness decrease the stay in the icu decrease hospital length of stay all of that decreases cost it decreases delirium depression and anxiety so it's not just the physical benefits. So that's one very important tool is really we're trying to push nationwide.
2: Sure.
1: Another one you'd think would be the logical uh, a logical solution would be to have post-discharge and follow-up clinics. But the research so far in those has been some small studies in various countries and different healthcare systems. So we're having trouble identifying what the right fit might be, what the right solution might be. Obviously, we have an obligation to do something to make sure that their needs are met, but I envision that this might vary from something like just a practitioner experienced in critical care, making follow-up visits and trying to make sure that they're getting their core care coordinated, reaching out to the providers so they understand more about post-intensive care syndrome varying just from that to all the way to a full one-stop clinic where all the services they might need are provided in one center, and they get assessed and get the treatment that they need and the follow-up that they need. So, Mm -hmm.
0: Intuitively, it would seem like it would decrease readmission rates and increase uh, patient satisfaction to have some type of coordinated care plan to help people rehabilitate, but Absolutely. Yeah, It sounds like from what you're saying is that we are still looking for the studies that would provide such data.
1: Yes, I think we're all trying, uh, there are efforts going on all over the world trying to come up with different strategies and uh, there might be a variety of ways that a facility and institution can consider. But I'm hopeful that we'll get information that it decreases readmission rate because we have the big problem of reimbursement and although it's the right thing to do getting those third-party payers to get them the reimbursement that they need to get it is a big problem are there other countries that have such practices in place already actually the UK is one of the countries 30 percent of their ICUs already have post-ICU follow-up clinics But like I said, I'm getting kind of impatient because the studies, you know, they have to be long term and they take a while to set up and they take a while for the results to be published, but we'll get there. A third thing that's been shown to be helpful is having a psychologist involved as part of the ICU team. They can help with support and counseling and uh, for families and patients, teach them about stress management and coping skills and the involvement of of psychiatrists psychologists in our in our care has been shown to cut the incidence of anxiety depression and PTSD post discharge in half so that's very exciting to me it's it's good to know
0: that there is data that proactive intervention can improve outcome there
1: and again as you said earlier it seems logical that that should be helpful but as usual we need the studies to support our suspicions another a very important strategy is to try to provide a very healing environment to decrease the stress and fear that patients and families have while they're experiencing, while they're in the ICU. And to help decrease delirium and agitation and anxiety, we can have sleep promotion programs. We can use non-pharmacological measures to, to enhance patient comfort, We can pay attention to the environmental factors such as temperature and heat and light. We can promote family participation and presence at the bedside. That can be very comforting to patients and families as well. We can make sure the patients have their glasses and their hearing aids so they can experience the environment. Uh, We can have families bring familiar objects from home And basically just show our compassion and respect for what they're going through. If we decrease delirium, that's been shown to decrease the risk of cognitive impairment and PTCS post-discharge. But I want to emphasize that it's best to try all of our non-pharmacological measures first because many of the drugs we use for pain and anxiety actually increase the risk of delirium which is a risk of PCIS, post-intensive care syndrome. Another thing that's widely used in Europe, very helpful, not used so much here in the U.S. yet, are ICU diaries. And these are records kept by the patient's family and staff that just records what happened to them during the ICU stay, what their day was like, just keeps a record. That the patient then can look at after they've gone home, maybe with a critical care provider or some other provider to help them understand it. But what happens is you can, they can use these to fill in their memory gaps and replace the very commonly held false memories and delusions that they remember and just basically help them understand what happened to them. And that, that's been shown already that it decreases anxiety, depression, and PTSD in patients. It's also been shown to decrease PTSD in families. Mm So I'm anxious and hopeful that that will start getting spread through our ICUs in the United States. Yeah, that sounds like a great strategy. A lot of this sounds um,
0: very much like they would benefit from being part of a protocol.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And uh, like so many changes in culture and practice, it requires education, it requires administration, administrative support, and it requires a protocol or something to make it easier for the clinicians to implement it. We also have a couple tools that uh, can be helpful. One is a functional reconciliation checklist, and this consists of a checklist that describes the patient's physical and cognitive and mental function, beginning with the family's assessment of what they were like just prior to admission. And then we use it to follow their progress day by day through the ICU, through their hospital stay. We give it to the patients and families to take with them as they go to their caregivers. And it makes sure that they're making forward progress and that those caring for them are aware of any impairments that they might be dealing with. It's not been studied yet, but I just think it could be a potentially useful tool. Then the second tool is the ABCD bundle, which is part of a global uh, initiative being promoted by critical care that's aimed at reducing the risks of sedation, delirium, and immobility. And all of those are risk factors for post-intensive care syndrome. So the A stands for Airway Management, B for Breathing trials, C for Coordination of Care and Communication, D for Delirium Assessment, E for Early Mobility. But we'd like to add an FGH, F for Family Involvement, G for Good Handoff Communication, and H for Having Handout Materials on Post-Intensive Care Syndrome for Patients and Families. So those are a couple tools that... And we're not there yet, but I'm a fan of the bundle uh, strategy, bundles that help decrease the incidence of complications of critical illness. And I'm kind of dreaming of a day when we have enough evidence of how each of these tools might be helpful that we get to the point where we have a bundle of strategies that if we apply them every day in every patient, that we can decrease dramatically. The incidence of post-intensive care syndrome. We haven't discussed really post-intensive care syndrome in families, which is another big issue because in families it not only occurs in families of patients who survive, but families of patients that don't survive. And I think a lot of those families are slipping through the cracks. And it kind of builds on our current model of family-centered care. We've always had a compassion and felt a responsibility for their well-being but we now understand that they are an important of information about the patient's past medical history values culture and a resource during their ICU stay and now we need them as a bridge to the patient's future care and recovery so it's addressing post intensive care syndrome in, in patients in families is not only humane and ethically and professionally responsible thing to do, but if we care for them, then they'll be better able to care for our patients. Right. Well, and it sounds like
0: with the prolonged psychological and possible physical issues that the patients have, the caretakers themselves are going to be subject to, you know, long term stresses. And so we, yeah, like you said, we definitely should be thinking about ways to care for them as well for that long term haul.
1: Absolutely. What we know about the risks is it's higher in women. It's higher in patients' spouses. It's higher in when the patient was a child or had a higher risk of death. It's higher in families with less education, and if they've been involved in the decision-making, when that's not a comfortable or preferred role for them, which happens quite frequently. you know, Our patients often can't make decisions for themselves, so we really do rely on the family for so many critical decisions. But we know it's lower, the risk of post-intensive care syndrome is lower if they get more support and information during the ICU stay. And if they're lucky to they have a good social support system at home. But the incidence of problems is fairly high in them too. 20 to 75% of families suffer from anxiety. 8 to 42% are depressed. And 8 to 33% of them experience symptoms of PTSD, So that we know that about a third of them are on medication for anxiety and depression when the patient's discharged. And just like in patients, these problems can last for years. They also have the added issues of complicated, prolonged grief and possibly the exacerbation of their own chronic health problems. And you can imagine all of this puts stress on any family relationships and dynamics and maybe even threaten the family's financial security. So
2: sure.
1: it's quite quite can be quite devastating. But the good news is we have some things we know can be helpful for them. We know that we really should promote family presence and participation in care. We know that we need good teamwork between the families and patients. That we have to have very frequent and understanding Understandable uh, communication of information with the family. We have to value their input and listen to what they have to say. We have to help them create ICU diaries and give them any written information that might be helpful in the post-recovery phase. And basically just encourage them to take good care of themselves while the patient's in ICU and after the psychologist's participation in family care and support groups during and after ICU uh, can be helpful. Maybe the psychologist can make follow-up visits or calls or establish follow-up grief or support programs. And the team members that can be very helpful with this, of course, are our caseworkers and discharge planners, social workers, because they're very good at coordinating and identifying uh, resources for the proper training and referral that the families might need. Yeah, I was
0: going to actually ask you, who are the best allies in combating PICS for critical care clinicians? And I think you just listed some of them. It sounds like we really uh, could benefit from getting psychologists to be involved Case workers, discharge planners, social workers, is thats
1: is that right? Yes, exactly. But I think it's also important to have people who have experience in critical care, and that could be a nurse, a doctor, or a social worker, or a psychologist, somebody who's been involved in the care of the critically ill to help with the care after discharge because they understand and can explain why some of these things have happened and can be a good communication link. Even though we're not trying to replace primary care, I think we are the ones that have to try to communicate what the impact might have been.
0: Right.
1: So it, it, these are a lot of things to ask of us when I know everybody's stretched and time is precious. But it's uh, these are pretty high-impact Efforts, things that we can do that will have a tremendous impact on our patients and families. And I think our success as critical care providers is going to be judged not on our survival, their survival rates, but if the patients get what they really want. And what they really want is the highest quality of care possible after survival of critical illness. Sure. And I think that should be our goal, too. In fact, I think it is.
0: Yeah, this is a very inspiring topic really and again thank you so much for being willing to elaborate on it with us Um, I wanted to ask you so where do you think we need to go from you know from this particular point in time we're more cognizant of the importance of uh, this syndrome we are beginning to know which steps we should be taking there are a lot of barriers in terms of Resources, how to justify this in a you know ever more competitive healthcare market?
1: So, yes, how how do we proceed? I think we have to do it individually and nationally. Nationally, I'm I'm very proud to be a member of the critical care community and a member of Secm. They really have just thrown themselves into doing what they can through the Thrive Initiative and their uh, various other programs that they started. And so the national leadership is very important in this. But we can't all just wait for these studies to be done. Now that we know what the, uh, our patients and families might be experiencing, we have a moral and ethical obligation to address it. So each of us through our own facilities and reaching out to our own communities have got to start to make the contacts to reach out and try to increase awareness. Do what we can locally at the grassroots level. I
0: think it would also help if we did get more study data so that we could hopefully advocate for more resources.
1: Absolutely. And and as I said, there. I've mean, been impatient because they're slow in coming, but uh, as any new uh, area of, of research, it, it does take a while. And once we get the evidence, then it's going to take another while to convince those that have are in charge of reimbursement, third-party payment. But I, I am fairly excited. I am looking forward to seeing how our patients and families are going to be doing five and 10 years from now. I really think we're going to make some great strides and Big improvements.
0: Well, I think um, you know, getting you to be on the podcast and to discuss this, and you know, basically have this be a call to arms for all of us to participate individually as well as an organization is a great step. So, thank you so much for your time, and I'd like to thank. All of our listeners for joining us today.
1: And thank you. And I'd like to thank them too. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. So this concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCritical Care for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin.
2: Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on Family Presence, Evidence versus Emotion, or SCCM Pod 232 on Assessing Family Satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at lharmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org projectdispatch Project Dispatch. Ludwig Lynn, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Alta Bates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lynn did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lynn of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.